Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? I am now purely liquid. It is very, very hot where we are uh, in our respective areas, folks, so, but, uh... Even Liquid can talk, I guess, so we're going to do that today. So we're going to be continuing our series on the lore behind the raids of World of Warcraft. Uh, but before we do that, if you do have questions for this show or a theme or anything that you want to send in for us to consider or possibly for the other show, be sure to send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Uh, that's our email address. Just make sure you specify where you want us to talk about it. Uh, if that's not your thing, you can always send them to us on Discord. We do have a channel set aside specifically for our Patreon subscribers. Uh, and if you are not a Patreon subscriber, we understand things are things are tough all over. We do have a Q and podcast question section on the Discord as well. Uh, and you can also hit us up there. We do look all over those and every one of those locations for questions or themes or content uh, before Matt and I decide to throw them down and wrestle over who gets to talk about which one I would show. But we're going to be talking about two particular raids today, uh, and this is going to be about the Encourage, both the Ruins and the Temple. Uh, them releasing was sort of a big event in classic World of Warcraft or vanilla World of Warcraft uh, with the entire opening of the gate. Uh, and many folks who played during that time will remember that it brought servers to its knees. There are so many people, so many things going on, so many different zones involved in it because it wasn't just in Silithus, uh, but tons of other zones had incursions as well from uh, the uh, our lovely little uh, Karaji and Silithid uh, friends all over the place, including, uh, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, we had Anubis-like statues popping up as well at various points and it was all part of this big glorious war effort and event to open the uh basically the gate the scarab gate i believe it was in order to get in there and start wreaking some havoc and take out an old god uh but i think we can start with uh the ruins of encourage matt what did you th what do you have to say about that well in order to talk about either the ruins or the temple we have to go way way back we have to go all the way back to before the Titanforge were even created, when the five old gods that we know of uh, reached Azeroth. The Black Empire. Yeah, the, even before the Black Empire. Uh, we talked last time about Blackwing Lair, and before that we talked about Molten Core. Molten Core is kind of linked to this, because in the beginning, young, you know, young Azeroth, before anybody had found it, before anything had disturbed it, was a planet of roiling elemental chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the Titan for the Titan soul within the planet draws upon the natural spirit energy that you know normally exists in worlds and pulls it into itself to gestate itself, uh, there wasn't enough for the elementals, and thus they began fighting over it. Uh, we've seen worlds where this isn't the case. If you go to Draenor, uh, the Breakers and the Primordials are the result of the Abundance. Prim yeah, the abundance of spirit energy because Draenor did not have a Titan soul in it, and thus the world was absolutely, you know, ripe with spirit, so much so that the plant life began to become Sentient. out of control. Uh, it was actually going to eat the whole planet, and that's where the breakers come in. But that's that's not related to this. It's just that's the result of what happens if there's enough spirit energy. The elementals live in peace. They don't need to fight. There's plenty for everybody. Azeroth did not have that. 
because there's a baby god living in it, try, you know, dr draining all of the spirit into itself. So the elemental lords fought for countless eons. We have no idea how long they were fighting. Um, the yeah, we have no we time marker of, for it whatsoever. Yeah, uh, but at at this point, after they'd been fighting for countless eons, out of the the void, uh, these entities were hurled into our universe. These these aberrations, these things. There's really no other way to put this. They, they're called entities, necrophotic entities at one point. Uh, they hit Azeroth. They land on the planet. Every place they land, uh, a hideous monstrosity structure, for lack of a better word, the body of the old god would rise. And the body of the old god would grow and become a kind of factory. And within that factory, uh, loathsome abominations would rise up and spread out into the world. Two that we know of, the names of, are the Naraki and the Atir. Mm -hmm. The Naraki are basically the Chathraxi and all the ones that kind of resemble them. All the weird, the ones we, we often hear called faceless ones. The weird tentacle-faced, giant, bug-like things. Which often acted like generals and lieutenants in, in, yes. as far as like delineating order and their, their will, right? Kind of like the old gods are too big and too alien to really do much directly. Uh, it is the Naraki who act as their their will. They 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 execute the the desires of the old god. Now the Naraki are powerful, extremely powerful. Um, we've seen ones like uh, General Vizax, um, Zakajas, and Kathix. We know that they are enormously powerful, but they're also there's only just there's only a few of them, relatively speaking. They're they're, they're a big investment. There's a lot of power in there. And they're big, too. Like, if you've played during Battle for Azeroth, you would have seen that big cutscene that involved one of them kind of rising up and going going to try to stop a city in a seal. So, like, we, which, again, we'll revisit later, but they're huge, and Matt's right. Yeah. They're, they're powerful, and they are large investments of energy and effort to make. If you did Dragon Soul, you saw two of them there as well. I mean, they're they're enormous. They they take up entire... entire um, you know, ca cavernous cathedral-sized dwellings. So they're, they're enormous. In order for the old gods to claim Azeroth, they needed more, because whilst the the, the Chithraxi are, are probably on par with an elemental lord, um, there's, there were four elemental lords and then uh, an, un an unbearable host of elementals. There were a lot of elementals. And once these, these intruders landed on, on Azeroth, the elemental lords were like, well, we could keep fighting, and we will get back to that, because we're all, we hate each other. But these things we don't want here. They're, we're going to have to get rid of them. And so the elementals came forth in force, united for the first time, and it looked like they might win. And then the old gods began secreting the Akir. The Akir are the insectoid kind of ancestors of a bunch of different an uh, entities on Azeroth. They're essentially the, the ancestors of the Karaji. Mm-hmm. The ancestors of the Nerubians, the ancestors of the Mantid. They are not the ancestors of the Silithid. The Silithid are their creations, but the Silithids are related to them in that they are their creations. Uh, but that's the the Akir. The Akir are not as individually powerful as the the Naraki, but there are it, there's an enormous amount of them. They can just be birthed on Moss, and then they can reproduce themselves as well. So. The old gods suddenly had a gigantic army with which to confront the forces of the elemental lords, and the elemental lords had the problem of when their when their soldiers are defeated, they're dispersed back to like another plane of existence to be reborn. It takes time for them to come back. 
the the old gods lose a minion, they just birth another one. Yeah, and not only that, but like take, keep in mind that like the uh, creating an insectoid like race to serve you as your military was not by chance. It wasn't an accident. They were able to reproduce quickly because again, and we've seen this if you've played through any part of the, the, the game for any length of time, you've come across these areas of huge hatcheries uh, where just clutches of eggs exist. And yeah. every version of these offshoot races do this. And so, like, it's not just they replace it with one. They can replace it with an entire brood. So yeah, And each one can reproduce, essentially. The way that the, the thing works is that the old gods can just make more whenever they want. And then those ones go on to make more as well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like if imagine if you know you kill one of their soldiers, you lose one of your soldiers. They get that soldier back. The elemental will come back. Essentially, you can't really kill an elemental. You can disperse it, and then its essence reforms possibly into a new elemental. So one for one, you'll get a new one back. The old old gods, you kill that. Say they lose a hundred of their soldiers to kill that one elemental. You're thinking, wow, that's not a good deal. Except each one of those soldiers they lost had like a hundred eggs before it died. And you can just birth another one out of your and- own body at the same time. So it's an exponential reproduction curve. The elementals couldn't keep up with it. And then, on top of that, that's bad enough. Should you mention the terraforming that the, the bugs did as well? Well, that's, that's later. What happened at this point when the elemental lords were like, okay, this is starting to look bad, we should get personally involved, is that was exactly what the old gods wanted. They wanted the elemental lords to show themselves, because remember that cipher of domination we were talking, cipher of damnation we were talking about a couple episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they used it on all four of them. Yep, and dominated them. So now, now the old gods were like, "This is great." Now we also have elementals as our slaves. We we can keep birthing our our soldiers, but we also can can throw elementals at things, and pretty much any resistance to their rule on on Azeroth was gone. The only force that could have stopped them at that time was the Elementals, and now the Elementals served their will. So, for a very long time, the Black Empire grew and spread. The only thing keeping the Old Gods in check was the other Old Gods, because they didn't get along either. Uh, but all, f- the, all there were five of them. All five recognized that Yashraj was the most powerful of them, with Cthune and Yogg as, as runners-up. Um, I'm trying to say, I keep saying five, but I'm only to think of four. There are only four. So the, yeah, we, we used to speculate that there was a fifth old god. Uh, it has, oh, I'm counting. I, I, I was accidentally counting. Uh, what's his name? Gahoon. Z's guy. Gahoon. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, uh, Gahoon doesn't count because he wasn't. He didn't get he didn't get created yet. That's my bad. I apologize. But yeah, of the four that reached Azeroth at this time, uh, Yishraj was the most powerful and the undisputed master. Both Yogg and Cthune could fight him. Like they could stand up to him. Partially because he couldn't put all his forces on any one of them. He couldn't just throw everything at Cthune because then Yogg would attack him. So the three of them balanced things out. Meanwhile, Nizoth was like, I'm not taking part in this if I don't have to. Like, I will fight you, but I'm not going to unless something comes over here. He just let them keep fighting each other because he knew, I'm the weakest, but I'm, not, I'm smarter than them. I'm mm-hmm. going to wait. I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to observe. And if you, again, going back to the Cataclysm for a moment, if you did Dragon Soul, you get to hear um, the two servants of Nazoth talk about this. And in Legion, uh, the blade that the Shadow Priests get, um, I can't remember Zalatath. its name. Zalatath, thank you. Uh, Zalatath even says, you know, Nazoth was the least of them. 
it's kind of amusing that he's the only one left. Uh, but that's how things stayed for a very long time. Azeroth, the, the old gods were like battening upon the planet. They were draining the spirit energy that was supposed to go to the, uh, the Titan. And they were trying to dig their tendrils down into the planet and reach the Titan soul when they would corrupt it. And then once they managed to do that, when it was born, it would become a void Titan dedicated to the void instead of to creation. And it would begin on making the universe. That was the, that was the whole reason they were there. But unfortunately, or for them, uh, things didn't work out as they'd hoped. Because sometime after Sargeras had had his little oopsie-doodle breakdown when he killed a Titan soul that was also in the process of being corrupted. Much in the, the same other, way. Let's, yeah. By yeah, being by corrupted by, 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 by old gods. Mm-hmm. Much, much, like, much like that. Yeah, that's what he was observing. So he destroyed that planet and killed that, that Titan soul. And it kind of drove him cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and he began trying to co- destroy the entire universe. Uh, the other Titans were like, oh, what the heck happened to Sargeras? And Agrimar went looking for him. Uh, one of the plants he found was Draenor, which obviously didn't have an, an old god infestation or a Titan problem, but it did have that spirit problem, so that's where the Breakers came from. So, in a way, all the, sp- all the creatures on Draenor who are descended from the original Breakers, which includes uh, Gron, Agron... Ogres. Uh, Magnaron, Magnaron, ogres, and orcs are all titan forged because they were made by a titan. A titan named Agrimar made all of them. But that, that of course, means that orcs are the gnomes of Draenor. They are the smallest and smartest of the titan forged. So, on that world. So, yes, orcs are the gnomes of Draenor. Someday I'm hoping for an orc gnome buddy team up. Uh, but at any rate, the titans found out about Azeroth. Uh, during his trip, Agrimar found the planet and he was like, um, it's bad. There's bad stuff happening on it, but also the Titan Soul is whoa. Like, like no, no offense to you, Amethul. You're the leader of the of the pantheon. We all think you're great. This Titan Soul could kick your ass. It's just this thing's amazing. We cannot let them get it. And they're like, okay, but like, what do we do? We can't just go there. We're like, we mess up the planet. We're like, we're, we're too big. We, we, you know, I can't just jam my hand in there and rip the thing out. That would probably be a bad idea. It's not like I'm going to do that later. And everyone's like, yeah, that would be silly. You wouldn't do that. And they all laughed for a little while, and then it freeze-framed. And then we, <laughs> it, it moved on to their, their actual plan. Um, A&R and Agrimar came up with an idea, and uh, Norganon helped them with it. The idea was, okay, we can't go to the planet ourselves. We're, we're too big. We're too massive. We'll, we'll cause problems if we do that. But we can essentially create servitors like we have on other worlds. Um and we've, we've got servants on other planets. We've done this before. We can make an army of them here. And they're, like, we'll make, we'll make general ones, like, ones that can, like, lead them. And they'll make smaller versions to, like, serve as their troops and so forth. They essentially stole the old gods' idea. The whole deal with the Naraki and the Akira. They basically stole that idea. But they decided, okay, this time we're going to make them out, out of the materials of the planet. We're going to make them out of metal and... And they're going to be like really good fighters, and so they created the what, what we know is the, uh, the the Watchers, the various like Odin and Thorim, and you know the folks uh, in Alduar that we've the, the folks in Alduar we've interacted with, and not and just such. not and just the Alduar. ones that are wandering around. Yeah, Arca- uh, like Arcadis, mm-hmm. Iranaya, um, Norushen, uh, a bunch of them, Master Ra, all of those guys. So they made they made the, the ones you see even in uh, the halls of origination, uh, Satesh, all those guys. They, so they made them, and they're like, okay, 
you guys are going to, like, we're, we're giving you the ability to, like, make these really expansive creation forges that you can use to create in your own images servants and soldiers, and you're, we are charging you with, with saving the Titan soul of this planet. Don't, don't allow this corruption to happen any further. And not only that, but they also gave them the ability to create those facilities as well, too. Yeah, but some of that comes later. Sure. So during this war, they created the, the creation forges to make more of themselves, and they basically said, have at it, do, your, do what we're telling you to do. The, the first thing that the various watchers realized was, okay, we've got two different forces to deal with, and one of those forces is kind of necessary to the planet. The planet can't do without elementals. Elementals are part and parcel of the of the fabric of the world. We can't just wipe them all out. We'd be killing the planet. Mm-hmm. What do we do? Okay, uh, we're gonna put Ra on. You know, Master Ra. This one's on you. We need you to figure this out. And he's like, okay, Odin. I need your your stepdaughter. Hell yeah, I need her help with this. She's one of the best we've got at at the kind of magic I need to do here. And the two of them together created the elemental planes. Uh, all those planes that we see now, they are prisons made by the Titan Forged during the, the cleansing of Azeroth. And the reason they made them was because you couldn't have... The, you couldn't just wipe the elementals out. Um, if you just killed them, they'd come back. If you actually destroyed them, then they that would kill the planet. So they basically built these places for the elementals to be confined so that their existence wouldn't be gone, and Azeroth wouldn't you know, be a land where there's no fire and no water and no air, but they're also not rampaging around fighting all the time. That's the first step. That's where Odin got his cool beard. Uh, that's not a beard. That's his, melt- his melted face. Mm-hmm. Because he... I forget the other ones. It was him and somebody else. I think it was actually Rodan, but I'm not sure. Pretty sure it, it was Rodan. Been... Pretty sure yeah. it was Rodan. The, they went up against Ragnaros... And Ragnaros basically said, okay, you want to go? You think you're hard? And he took Sulphurus and, like, you know, bashed Odin in the face with it. And it, you know, it did hurt, but Odin actually is hard. It turns out Odin is a good fighter. And the two of them together did manage to beat him. Wasn't easy, but and they Odin did definitely it. paid a toll for it. Yeah, he got, he got, you know, that, that stuff, that's literally his face leaking off. It's melting and, and flowing. The damage that Ragnaros did is eternal. It, it doesn't heal. So... They managed to imprison Ragnaros. Uh, various other Watchers imprisoned the other three Elemental Lords. Uh, you get the sense that some of them were easier to imprison than others. Like, I, I don't think that the Earth Mother put up too much of a fight. I think she was like, you're just going to make me be someplace I'd rather be anyway? Sure, whatever. Yeah, I wanna, but, I wanna, you, I'm want to. i going to stick in my cage and don't have to deal with the mortal realm at all? Sure, sweet, I'm out. Yeah, I, I do think that there was some threatening going on, but not all of them were like Ragnaros. But in the end, they were, they were beaten. But that was just the opening act. The opening act was creating four prison planes and imprisoning the most powerful elementals of the planet in those planes. That was that was just the warm up. Now they had to fight everything. Like mm-hmm. the, the old gods had completely papered the planet in servitors. Now, uh, at this point, if you're listening to this, I'm going to highly recommend that you take a, a couple minute break. And if you have a copy of Chronicle actually open it up and take a look at the map. There is a map of the Black Empire there. Just go ahead and take a look at that. It was everything. And I do mean everything. Uh, and like Matt pointed out earlier in the conversation, yes, they were there were borders between the four old gods and where their, their sort of influence ended, and it was various, various scales, but they had almost all of the landmass. 
under yeah, at least their everything influence. we yeah everything we know about um, yep. if there were other continents we don't know about them but that that was the opening act and i promise you we're going to get to actually talking about this is important for it though yeah. yeah at this point the titan forge were like all right the strongest of these four is yashraj uh, some of the Watchers were, were given enough forces to keep the other two occupied. They, some went after C'Thun, some went after Yogg, but the main force went after Yashraj. Now, you'll notice I didn't say anything about Nazoth, because Nazoth was still playing his waiting game, and the Titan Forge were like, we don't need to worry about him yet. We'll keep some forces in reserve in case he decides to come out, but we could probably crush him easier than the others, and he's not doing anything. So we're going to go after the other three. Which all, you know, we got to come back to that at some point because I have questions about that as far as specifically yeah. Nizoth goes, but we'll come back. Uh, maybe not for this one because Nizoth yeah. is not actually that important. Yep, yep. But they went, they went, and the force of them actually got to to the Black Empire. They got to Yashraj's, the mountain that was Yashraj's body, essentially the thing that just belched out nightmare monsters twenty four seven, and it was an it was a grueling fight, and they were losing like they were losing Titan Forge as fast as they could make. The, tit- the creation forges were going at capacity. They were making new Titan Forge constantly, and it was just barely enough. And seeing this, and forgetting that earlier conversation that he and all the other Pantheon had, uh, Amanthul was like, "Okay, I don't want any more of my my Titan Forge to die." Because whilst they were creations, they weren't unvalued. The Titans don't think of their creations as disposable no there the, there's a lot of like familiar like these are my children i made these i don't want them to, to, to die type thing going on yeah it's very much like you know every one of these is precious because they, they have a spirit they have a soul they have a mind they're living things they're important and so whilst it's worth it sometimes to to save things you you, you have to take sometimes things are happen but to see them dying like this you know, Amethyst was like, "No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take, I, I'm gonna take action. I can't just jump on the planet, but maybe if I just reach down a hand." And so I, I'm, I'm saying that to you because I want you to understand the scale of a Titan at full power. Yeah, not the ones that we've seen, but at full power before anything else happened. And that when we say this, I'm including Sargeras in this. He wasn't at full power either. Mm-hmm. And he still Remember, was enveloping a planet. Yeah, that was Sargeras at maybe like ten percent. So keep that in mind. But Amethyl reached down, and now again, for scale purposes, Yashraj was probably about the size of Black Rock Mountain. If not larger. If not larger. We have no real way of knowing, but massive, enormous, this gigantic complex, big enough to be considered a city. And with his thumb and forefinger, Amethyl reached down and plucked him out of the planet. Yep, like a real big blackhead. And in doing so... He tore Yashraj apart and scattered him across the continent and ripped a gigantic wound in the planet. Because remember those tendrils I told you about that they were extending to try to corrupt the planet? Those they came were out deep. Too. Yep. And they were deep. In doing this, he, had, he wounded the planet grievously. And he was like, oh, crap. Now I remember that conversation I had earlier where I said I shouldn't do this. Damn it. Yeah, and now look at all this lifeblood we have to deal with because that's exactly what started spewing forth from the surface of the planet. So a lot of this isn't necessarily important for the purposes of Ankaraj, but we'll too briefly sum up. Old gods can't just be killed or bad things happen. Uh, big wound in the planet needed to be dealt with. This created the ordering of Azeroth. The other three old gods were all imprisoned in Titan-built facilities designed to basically render them harmless and make them be unconscious and dormant. 
rather than trying to kill them because that did not work out too well. Um, the corruption of Yashraj lived on past its death and would have all sorts of problems for us in Mists of Pandaria. But that also established that even if we could kill them without hurting the planet, it's not a good idea because it just makes them worse. So all that stuff happened. Cut to 16,000 years before the, the opening of the Dark Portal. Before the First War, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a group at this time called the Trolls, uh, specifically the Zandalari Empire of Trolls. They were becoming very powerful. Uh, there was one group of trolls that had found the, uh, the, the Well of Eternity, the, the remains of that wound that Amethyl made. They're, they're, they're changing, but at this time they're not important. The important thing is that the Zandalari have become kind of fractious. Their, their empire is splitting up into different tribes and not really listening to the original Zandalari anymore. But, it, but they're not quite broken up yet. Things are just getting kind of, kind of contentious. One group of them stumbles upon an Akir nest that had been buried for countless... These were members of the eons. Empire of Azul, wasn't it? What? The the trolls that stumbled upon it. Weren't they the the newly, like, trolls of the Empire of Azul? Yes, because it was it was the Zandalari at this time. They were still Zandalari. Um, but the Zandalari, were, they were fracturing. Mm-hmm. The Empire of Azul is one of the several sub-empires, for lack of a better word. But they found this Akir nest, and inside the Akir nest... There was a, a Naraki, a Chathrax. The Chathrax name was Kithix. And Kithix was very powerful. And he soon gained control of all the Akir in the nest and began making them reproduce. And after a while, he had enough of them to decide, I'm going to just destroy these trolls. And then, because I don't know if you've noticed, if you've d- and you did Battle for Azeroth, you probably did notice, the troll. a lot of the troll cities are built on Titan facilities. Mm-hmm. Like the Zara lore, Titan all facility. Deer. Yeah, all deer was originally a, a troll city, Titan facility, and there's one in the uh, deserts, um, not Nazmir. No, I can't remember. In the Valdun. Yeah, in Valdun, there's another one. It's it's the third one that you actually you know you you see get activated. Um, so there were there were several Titan facilities that the trolls were like currently basically like living on top of, and that was they they wanted to get into them. For one thing, because the Titan facilities had old god experiments in them, which is we, get, we talked about Cahoon, that was going on. Uh, that would be useful to Kithix and his his goal to find and, and awaken the original gods. So this battle happened. During this battle, the the Zandalari realized we can't win this war and keep the empire together, and we can't survive as a people if we don't win the war. So they allowed the Gurubashi and the Amani to basically become their own empires. Mm-hmm. They, they were like, we're, we're, we're going to be the religious authorities. You should still listen to us, but Wasn't go ahead. Wasn't the Drakari also part of that as well? The Drakari were less allowed and more just kind of did it. Okay, fair enough. And, and their, their empire was smaller. They were just kind of like, they were actually more like clients of the Gurubashi. But they did, in fact, go off. Um, in fact, it's actually interesting that you brought up the Drakari because... Uh, when you when you look at what happened next, as as the the trolls slowly began to win the war, they they drove various forces underground. They 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 finally managed to defeat Kithix. The Gurubashi chased the Akir across the south of what was then just Kalimdor. Remember, it was just the one big continent. Mm-hmm. And the the Akir dug their way down into a Titan facility to escape the Gurubashi. And the Gurubashi were like. 
okay, that thing's, whatever that building is, it's too much for us to take it. There's, it's like a giant fortress. It also We're had, just going to. Yeah, it also had like huge funnel points. It was something uh, like you got to understand, too, at this time, trolls are not dumb. They are actually very smart and understand how to wage warfare, which is why they were an empire at this time. And so looking at this, they knew that if they were to try to go in there and if you go back and visit this area, you can see why the only points of egress were like they'd have to funnel themselves through. It was not a war, a fight that they could win that way. They, they were like, well, it, there was just one group of Akir. How, how hard can they even be? If they come out, we'll deal with them. But they're contained in there, and that's fine by us. They didn't realize, first off, there were more Akir than they thought. Secondly, that they were reproducing down there. And mm-hmm. third, they had defeated the defenders of this place, which were Anubisath guards. There was a skeleton crew of Anubisath who were Titan-forged that were created to guard this place. There were also some Tolvir uh, in the place. If you've been to, to, to Uldum, it's basically the same kind of people. It's an outpost of Uldum. They they overran the place, and then they found the old god in the basement. And they broke. They were like, we got to get him out. But they couldn't quite do it. They couldn't get him out of the bindings. But they could sleep in his chamber. They could be influenced by him. And in the process, as Isakir did so, Cthulhu reached out as the god of madness and, and chaos and insanity and changed them transforming the Akir into the Karaji to better serve his will. Because he wanted to be free. He didn't just want to like be have a, a group of minions. He wanted them to, to get him out of this stupid like prison that he was locked in. But they couldn't do it. Then that's how Akir that's how Ankaraj went from what it was to Ankaraj. That's how it became the Karaj city. It obviously wasn't called Ankaraj before this. They named it after themselves. Uh, thousands of years went by. The uh, Gurubashi and Amani essentially eventually ran up against a force they couldn't beat, um, a group called Night Elves, the mm-hmm. Kaldori. The Kaldori are descended from trolls. Uh, they don't like hearing that. They don't like it when you say that, but they are. Um, they had an ability that the trolls didn't have. By accessing the Well of Eternity, the, the wound that was left behind but when Amanthul ripped Ishaj out, they'd learned arcane magic. At this time, the trolls did not have any arcane magic and didn't know what to do about it. They had their they had divine magic. They could speak to their Loa and get power that way. But the Night Elves had their own Loa that they called Ancients for some weird reason. And they had arcane magic. So oh, they had their own Loa and this new arcane thing. But it wasn't and just... They were, I was going to say, the, the one thing to also keep in mind, too, is they weren't completely, uh, like, the, the powers that the Night Elves could call on... Like, that wasn't unknown to them as far as those powerful Loa goes. Because at one point during the... No, the Loa they absolutely knew about. Yeah. The, the, but it was the arcane magic that they were drawing yes. from the Well of Eternity. Yep. That the, tro- the trolls could have handled it. If the Night Elves had shown up with their Loa, it would have been a fair fight. I mean, maybe it would have actually been a fight in the trolls' favor because there were multiple groups of them versus one tribe of Night Elves. And considering that... air quotes, yeah. And considering the trolls but, had worked with the Wild Gods before. Uh, so, yeah. But the arcane magic they had no defense against. They had no idea what it was. They'd never seen anything like it. Um, they'd fought the Karaj, and they have weird twisted magic, but it wasn't the same thing. And they were driven back. And the other problem was that they weren't working together anymore. The Sandalari would be like, we got to do this. And everybody would be like, I'm not doing that. I'm protecting my lands. So the Amani and the Gurubashi each tried to fight them alone, and each lost. The Sandalar were like, we're going to pull back and defend the Sacred Mountain. The Night Elves were like, you can keep your sacred mountain, 
first off, there's there's wild gods living on it, and we don't want to hurt them. And secondly, we don't care. You have a mountain. Good job. It's all yours. And they took the rest of the planet. They pushed the trolls to, like, the, the north and south and east. They pushed them to enclaves that they were like, okay, that's fine. We've got enough. Which was something the trolls had themselves had never done. The trolls were never like, ah, oh, that's fine. We've got enough. The night elves were like, yeah, we, we control, like, what, 80% of the place? That's good enough. And at the same time, while this was happening, the Mogu were, like, awakening and reestablishing themselves. And the night elves were like, yeah, we don't need to fight those guys. We, we got enough. We're happy with what we have. But w- since that happened, the night elves had no idea about this weird little base in the south that had a bunch of Karaji in it. They'd never, they didn't know about the Akira that got driven there. They didn't know about the, the war between the trolls and the Akira in the first place because they had separated from the trolls way before that. Their, their people were completely different and they did not understand the dangers. So many thousands of years after all that, after the sundering happens, after that whole deal where Malfurion basically decides uh, better to destroy the continent than have Sargeras walking on the planet. And he might have been right, ultimately. There's... This whole thing gets to a, a thing called the War of the Shifting Sands. And the War of the Shifting Sands is very important to the entire concept of Ankaraj as, as a dungeon that we're going to go to. Because the War of the Shifting Sands is where we first get a, a young hothead Archdruid named Fandral Stackhelm. Yep. He wasn't an Archdruid at the time. Uh, oh, no, actually, he was. He was. Yeah, this is, yeah, he absolutely this is only, was. This is roughly a thousand years ago. Yep. And Fandral had a son named Valstad. Uh, very, very proud of his son. You know, loved him dearly. Valstan had a wife. Um, his wife had a daughter with with Valstan. Uh, good family. He was he was really happy about it. Um, but during this whole thing, the, the the old god had been steadily working to to increase the Karaji numbers, to make them stronger and more able, and to get them ready to basically assault back out onto the world. Right. Yeah. And the night elves are exploring their new continent because you know Kalimdor was much smaller. It was a different place. They were exploring. They were doing so very, very leisurely. They'd had a lot of stuff. They'd had the whole, you know, for the past several thousand years, they'd been just trying to recover from that, you know, thing where the world almost died. But they eventually got down to Silithus. And a few of them actually reached on Karaj. And they were just like, what is this? This is really weird and interesting. It kind of reminds me of the of the Temple of Elune. Remember the Temple of Elune? Yeah, yeah, I remember. That's under the water now. Same kind of buildings, though, but different. They're twisted. I've not seen anything like this before. Why do they have obelisks now? Yeah, this is kind of nuts. Let's go in there. Those particular night elves were never seen again. But the other night elves soon found out what had happened to them when the Karaji came boiling out on Karaj and just basically going buck wild, trying to, like, conquer the whole bloody place. This was, you know, the night elves were like, what? what the heck is happening? And... Fandral found himself in charge of the defense, and he did okay for a while. Yeah, there actually was a bunch of back and forth battles for a long time. So, like the the night elves would push the the Karaji back to the walls, uh, and then the Karaji would then counterattack and push them back. And it was like this giant like push between the two of them. Um, I think I know where you're going to go with this, which is the what started sort of the big pivotal moment, I guess, at this point, or at least yeah. one of them. So after I mean, if you want to do it, go ahead. Yeah, after a ton of, of very, very vicious fighting, and let's make no no qualms about it, it was vicious fighting between the two of them. Uh, the night elves started getting the upper hand and had been pushing them back to the, Kar- the Karaji gates. But instead of stopping at the gates, they tried to push them further back and in, deep into Silithus. Um, 
but during that battle, during one of those those go and give back and forths, Strang helped son Valstan, who was fighting alongside his father in the war efforts, was surrounded and cut to pieces before Fandral's eyes, breaking the arch druid. Uh, that actually was a a turning point, which allowed. Um, basically the Karaji to sort of bubble forth with a renewed vigor, renewed effort and ferocity uh, to sort of like take that land because now the elves didn't, they were without leadership. Um, the leader that they did have was sort of broken uh, and it was the best that they could do to survive and hold on into that little fortress that was there, which if you go there and see some of the spirits that are walking around, they weren't exactly massively successful, but the Silithid wound up, or the Karaji, excuse me, wound up spreading so far that they actually started reaching and assaulting the Caverns of Time, the home of the Bronze yeah. Dragonflight, who had been sort of not involved in this war up until this point. Yeah, that's actually something we need to talk about. The uh, the Karaji marched straight across what is now uh, Ungoro. They couldn't go through Ungoro because of Titan facilities that were basically protecting it. They had to go around it. Mm-hmm. And that meant that they had to go through what is now Tenaris. Uh, they did. They went through it. And in the process, they ran into the Bronze Dragonflight. Now, the Night Elves had actually gone to the Bronze Dragons at this point and said, you've got to help us. We, we can't stop them. We need your help. And the dragons were like, not our problem. We got our own thing to worry yeah. about. We got our own job. We don't, do. we, we don't, we're not worried about a bunch of like bug people. But when they showed up at the Caverns of Time, uh, Anachronos realized they're controlled by an old god. That is our problem. Okay, we now we are going to help you. And the combined forces of the Bronze Dragonflight and the Night Elves under Staghelm marched their way back to, um, you know, through basically around Ungoro, right up to the gates of Ankaraj, and pushed the uh, Karaji back in. And this time, they didn't try to go down into the facility, they just sealed it off using magic. The Bronze Dragonflight tried to reward Fandral the, the scepter that was capable of, of, of locking and unlocking the thing, because this was intended to be temporary. They're like, okay, you can go gather your forces. Here's the scepter. When the time comes, you can reopen this place and go in there and finish it off. And he broke it. Yeah, he was, I mean, he, he's he's mad at this point, right? His son's, yeah. his son's dead. He doesn't want to go in there and fight anymore, because what's the point of it? What's the purpose of it? And, and he also blames the Bronze Dragons. Oh, yeah, for not helping remember, him in the first place. Yeah, he had asked them for help, and they said no, and his son died. His son didn't just die, by the way. He wasn't just beaten in war. He was captured, paraded up in front of Fandral by one of the, the basically, another Naraki, and murdered in front of him. They wanted him to see it, mm-hmm. and they tore him apart right in front of his father. And that's when Fandral broke. And and so when given this scepter, he just he shattered it and walked away. He's like, let them stay in there forever in your in your stupid time bubble that you created. And the other dragons at this point had also helped. Uh, the bronze, the green, the red, and the blue dragonflights all helped. Uh, and so four of them ended up inside on Carage when it was sealed again. And they would remain there for the next thousand years. But yeah, 4,000 years after this war, Ankaraj lay still. And then the second war happened. And a guy named Chogal came to Azeroth. Chogal, you want to talk about Chogal or you want me to do it? Keep going. I'm good. Okay. Chogal was, to put it mildly, Gul'dan's most insane apprentice. I'm going to say that again. 
He was Gul'dan's most insane apprentice. This is a guy who had Terran Gorfiend as an apprentice. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem was that Cho'Gal was one of the rare two-headed ogres. Part of the problem was that Cho'Gal had been exposed to the strange void magics uh, around Ashagun in Nagrant because Goldon wanted to know if he could use those to help conquer, you know, the entire universe, basically. After, after they got Draenor, he wanted to keep going. Cho'Gal was hearing whispers and thought they were good ideas. But when he came to Azeroth, the, the difference is quite simple. There are no old gods on Draenor. There are three living old gods on Azeroth. And various states of awakened influence. Yep. Yeah. There were three of them. And one of them was dead, but that didn't matter. Like, it was dead, but still doing things because they don't stay dead right. And Cho'Gal went nuts. He, like, take what he was before and, like, go from, I hear whispers that tell me what to do to those whispers now have, like, a DJ. Yeah, nine and, screaming uh, voices are in my head. What do I do? This is fan. Yeah. This is awful. And, and he, he he just broke. And for a little while, he just didn't do anything. And they were like, okay, what? And then he went he went completely bonkers. It was through Cho'Gal that the, the orcs of the Old Horde managed to take the top of Blackrock Mountain. Because they just overwhelmed the place with shadow monsters. And the, the Dark Iron Dwarves were like, oh god, not this again, and ran. They just straight up ran, sealed themselves in the basement, essentially, and were like, nope, we're not coming out, we're not dealing with it. They've got that shadow magic. You remember what happened to the last time we dealt with that stuff? Nope, 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 nope. So that's how they got the top. But Cho'Gal was like, that's fine, but I hear voices, and they want me to do things. And Gul'dan was like, that's great, we're gonna go kill all the humans at the city now. Cho'Gal's like, okay, I tried talking to you. Clearly you're not listening, so... When the orcs assaulted Lordaeron, Cho'Gal took the entire Twilight Hammer and Thunderlord clans and booked it. Now, he did this while Gul'dan was also taking his clans and booking it. Because Gul'dan wanted to go to the Broken Shores and to find the, the Tomb of Sargeras, the former Temple of Elun. And Cho'Gal didn't really, Gul'dan didn't realize Cho'Gal was just going with him so he could then keep going and get to Silithus, which he did, which is probably one of the reasons Gul'dan ended up dead, because he didn't have his strongest apprentice with him mm-hmm. when he went down into a demon-infested ruin, nor nor all the crazy sorcerers that could do weird shadow magic stuff that Fel doesn't know what to do about. Demons aren't really great at dealing with shadow magic. They're not even... The Voidwalkers are the only ones, and Voidwalkers are technically not really demons. The whole thing... Ended up Cho'Gal in Silithus. Cho'Gal then basically made his way to Ankaraj, went down into Ankaraj, found the resting place of C'Thun, still trapped, still seething in rage, and he managed to break some of the bindings on him. Not all. Not all, but some. He did what the Karaji could not do and established a level of freedom for for uh, C'Thun. And in the process, learned where yogg Saron was. This is where Cho'Gal exits the picture. Cho'Gal then goes north to find and do the same for, for yogg Saron. C'Thun wakes up his Karaji and, and says, okay, get the Silithid, get ready, we're doing it again. And this time we're going to use everything. Cut to that scene of Commissioner Gordon from the Dark Knight movies screaming everything from his performance in Leon. It would have been better if I could have remembered the name of the actor. 
What is the name of the actor, Joe? Gary Oldman. Thank you. Gary Oldman screaming everything. That's Cthulhu right now. The Night Elves, meanwhile, the, the third war happens. The Burning Legion is barely driven back. Uh, Malfurion takes a nap. Uh, Fandral Staghelm is now kind of in charge of the Night Elves, although Taronda is still there and the two of them are fighting. Fandral's probably going a little cuckoo for Cocoa Pops at this point due to the whispers of Xavius, but hasn't actually gone completely overboard yet. And these weird silithid things keep popping up. And finally, Taronda is like, look, uh, go down, look at this, investigate it. I want to know what's going on. A uh, bunch of people end up in, in Feralos. Around the same time, the Horde are like, we're trying really hard to colonize Thousand Needles, and these giant insect things are not making it easy. Yeah, why do they keep popping up? We can't seem to get rid of them. They're in the Barrens. They're in they're in Feralos. Somebody go figure out what that is. So simultaneously, the Alliance and the Horde are both like, giant bugs, not good. What's going on? Uh, I don't remember who. I think it's Thrall, actually. Uh, if you're a Horde, you come back to Thrall. If you're Alliance, you go to Taronda, and you're like, uh, so the bug things are worshipping other bigger, scarier bug things? And uh, I don't know, the word Karaji popped up? I don't know what that is. And Toronto's like, what? And Thrall is like, hmm, let me ask the elements. Elements are like, bad, 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 bad. Okay. Um, elements seem to think this is bad. So, yeah. every At this point, both the Alliance and the Horde realize bad things are coming. And in a in a rare display of sensibility, they decide to stop hitting each other long enough for this to be dealt with. This is this is the what we refer to as the war effort. Uh, and what this was is in game represented by a multi stage event that spanned all members of the Horde and Alliance working together to gather resources to actually take the fight into uh, the ruins of uh, of what are on Garage at this point. Um, and it was very, very interesting because at, from a game standpoint, nothing had ever really been done at this scale. And this is, if you were playing at the time, this is where you were turning in cloth and you were turning in meat and you were turning in things, supplies for a war effort legitimately. And there was a gauge and it was all leading up to reestablishing the scepter that had been shattered by Fandral Staghelm. Uh, all those years ago, a thousand years at this point, um, had, had getting those pieces together and going to the Scarab Gong with a fully fleshed army to open the gates, shatter the time bubble and take the fight to the inside to push it back, to get to the source of the corruption and put an end to it. And for those of you that played during this time, it was an epic event and it, it was a 10 hour long event from the time that gong was rang to the time the event was over and you could actually go into the, the raid instances legitimately real time, 10 hours of silithid popping up, uh, corrupted, uh, sentinels popping up all over the place. Yeah. Uh, various big Anubisath would come out. Yeah. Until you could and finally also, complete it and get in there. Yeah. And one thing that we pointed out, uh, one thing that was unique to this in terms of game lore is from the moment the gong was rung by the first person to ring it, that 10-hour period of time was all the time you had to assemble your own scepter and ring it. Yep. And if you succeeded in doing so, once the event was over, you got the title Scarab Lord. Yep. 
and you that's the first title I can think of in World of Warcraft. If there was another one, I don't know about it. That was the first one, and it was the first effort, and it was the first time guilds had to choose who got something like that, really, because it wasn't mm-hmm. esoteric like or, or something that could be done multiple times, yeah, you, like you, the legendary weapons, right? Yeah, this was going to happen once for your group. Uh, our guild picked our guild master. We told, you know... Ours because, did, too. Yeah, and he got it. He managed to get Scarab Lord. He doesn't play anymore, but, you know... <sighs> but... That that was a unique thing in the game. The Scarab Lord title, the people getting to ride the they they got a mount that actually like they got one of the Karaji mounts that works inside EQ. But it that works outside. outside of AQ. You could just ride it anywhere you wanted. It's the only to this day I think it's the only Karaji mount that you can ride around outside of AQ. No, I think they added another one to the game, but that that's regard regardless. It, for a long time it was the only one. Uh but yeah, basically the, the next the raids themselves were in order. Like you ran the twenty man uh, Ruins of Ankaraj first. In terms of the story, you went up there first and you fought your way through the various bosses till you got to Osiria and the Unscarred, who was the chief Anubisath slave of the old god. He was supposed to be is- the one that was running the facility, that particular portion mm-hmm. of the facility. Yeah. He, not only that, he was the one that originally went out and fought during the War of the Shifting Sands, and whilst he killed the dragon that he was fighting, he took so much damage that the the old gods had to rebuild him. Mm-hmm. They transformed him. That's why he didn't look like an Anubisath. That's why he had a giant uh, bird Actually, the, I believe the name of the race is Horusath, not Anubisath. Oh, yes, Horusath, you're right. Um, and they rebuilt him and, and gave him dominion over the ruins. So you had to go kill that guy to get past him. Like, he had the, he had the means to unlock the temple. And so you had to go kill... You had to do the 20-man the, the raid, kill him... This wasn't actually necessary to do it. Like, in the story, this is what happened, but you didn't have to kill a Syrian to go to AQ-40. You just... It was just the story that you did. You went and you killed him. Uh, you defeated... By defeating them, you, you... One of the things you did was turn off the defense system that allowed the uh, Karaji to just create tornadoes whenever they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Which, believe me, that was a pain. Uh, you did that, and then you went into the temple. And that's where things get real. Because that's where most of the Karaji actually are. The, uh... Ruins with stuff like Anubisath servants, a couple of generals, things like that. And the, uh, basically, the, the whole point of it was to take out the defense system so that you could go into the temple, as yeah. Matt pointed out. And when you go to, to AQ-40, the, the temple of Ankaraj, that's where the Karaji are. It's led by the, the, I think it was uh, Prophet Scarum? He was the first one, but that was actually led by the Twin Emperors. Oh, no, no. I meant like the, when you first go in, oh, yeah, Prophet no. Scarum is the first yes. lead off, is what I should have said. Yeah, so you the, fight your prophet Scarum first. He whispers blasphemous truths, and he's like this this carbinger style uh, tirage that we'd see again later. It's a specific type, but and from there, and the other thing too is like the Temple of Ankaraj also held Karaji for lack of a better term royalty. Um, yeah, and that's the other thing to keep in mind too is while they operated very much like a what we would think of a traditional bug hive with some sort of expanded. Um, hierarchy. So there wasn't just a queen. There was, uh, they call them the bug, we call them the bug trio, but mm-hmm. they have names. Uh, and I can't remember them off the top of my head. I'm going to look them up real quick. Uh, no, you keep talking. I got that right here. I'll okay. Just- I got them up already. So it was Lord Cree, Princess Hauj, and them. Um, but there was also Princess Huharan. Uh, these were essentially a leadership or, or higher up structure 
of sort of that Silithid Karaji hive mind. They again, we talked about how they delineated uh, the old gods through their servants, and then down through the line, there was a very distinct hierarchy of how orders were sort of delivered through. And it was just, it, it was fascinating because that was the first time you had gotten to experience that as a player. It, you had heard about it, you had seen the Silithids, you've gone into Silithid tunnels uh, occasionally here and there as part of your questing and doing the stuff, but you had never been able to see where the orders were basically being derived from. So canonically, you were cutting the head off the snake, and that's what you were trying to do, um, which eventually leads us leads you to the chamber just outside of where C'Thun sits, uh, or above C'Thun, I believe, where the Twin Emperors reign, um, which in and of itself was sort of a a massive, interesting thing, not only because these were Karaji, uh, but large on a scale that you hadn't seen before. They were bigger than Prophet Scarum, but they were also humanoid. And up to this point, like even like the Prophet, even even that particular flavor of them, while vaguely human in silhouette, was still a bug. Like you look at it. And you still, it doesn't look human. It doesn't look like it has uh, features or... It's got, or yeah, and, for one thing, it's got like six legs. Yeah. yeah. It looks like you kind of tried to create a humanoid torso mm-hmm. and stuck it on top of a bug for no reason. Or you've got a bug that is just rearing up for no reason. It doesn't look at all like a humanoid. However, v- Veklor and Veknalash did. In fact, uh, because of the structure of the game... They were using night elf skeletons. Mm-hmm. They were animated like night elves. And since it was night elves that rediscovered the place and reawakened it, I've always wondered if they were intended to be built on the night elf plan. Like if they looked at the night elves and thought, oh, these must be the dominant species on the planet. Let's let's see if we can co-opt it. Yeah, let's emulate it or corrupt it. You know, it was just, we don't know exactly, we don't know where they came from ultimately. We just know that they... The twin emperors were the ones who actually led while Cthulhu dreamed. Because Cthulhu wasn't capable of, of... It's hard to put this. During the, When Cthulhu was confined, there's a legend that he fought some kind of titan, and the titan fell. But Cthulhu was in the process, you know, defeated. It obviously wasn't an actual titan, but it was probably a, t- a powerful titan forge. It might have been Master Ra. Because we know Master Ra helped build and expand the facility that would become Ankaraj. Uh, but in the process, he got whooped and locked up so it's possible that that's why he couldn't reach forth but the twin emperors could and did yeah and it was one of the first times that you had gotten to experience that level of power too and and that's something i I don't think can be overstated because the directness of the encounter itself really spoke to the level of importance that these two figures held like yes they called themselves the emperors but you could see why. It was also, I believe, and Matt can correct me if I'm wrong, the first time that an alternate tanking strategy had to be enacted because of the way that I think it was Veklor worked with his shadow damage. Uh, it was partially that, partially the way that he did a thing that basically wiped all aggro. Yes. You would have a, a tank on him, and he would do a thing that basically blasted the tank away and wiped all aggro, and then he'd start running across the room, and you needed... Uh, the way we did it was we had a warlock who did one of them. Because remember, they would switch positions. They would actually... They were each standing on a platform, and you would try to tank them on those platforms, and then they would just magically swap. And if they got close to each other, they would start healing each other and destroy you. they just blow up your raid. You couldn't... You had to keep them separate. 
So you had to have a tank and a warlock on each platform. The tank would take the physical one, the one mm-hmm. that could take physical damage. The tank would take that one. He would take when they did Vectalash. Yeah. When they did the big swap, the warlock would then start spamming like uh, his damage abilities to get the the caster to hit him. And the warlock would just sit there and, and be like smashing him with as much high threat magic as he could and just take absorbing the damage because they I believe they did shadow damage. Yes. And that was something the warlocks could do something about. Plus, you'd have a healer dedicated to keeping the warlock up. And that was how we did it. We just had them. And you had to have, like, a warrior. Like, we, we had a warrior who would, like, sit in the middle. And if the one of the, the, the melee ones started running towards the middle, he'd charge him and taunt and then just run. The the other thing that's... Over the wall. Because they couldn't get too close together. This was very complicated at the time because there was also these bugs that would be changed. And, you and they bug, would, yeah. Yeah. A ton of stuff going on. Heck of a fight. It was, and it, it was a fight that actually showed you lore. It showed you this is the the, the power of the old gods. This is their weird twisting of nature. It, this is their abominable force. And it wasn't just that, too. Like, the, the entire raid did that in a way that a lot of the other stuff hadn't before. In the last episode where we talked about Blackwing Lair and specifically having to get the Anixia scale cloak in order to survive through the encounter to continue on with the encounter. They took that idea here and laid it all throughout the entirety of the Temple of Ankaraj. And it was not just informed by, yes, this is a fight mechanic, but story-wise it was woven through. You were preparing for war on specific battlefields in specific theaters. So... Again, like going back to like Princess Huharan, that was a nature resist fight. You had to stack that. Not Oh, and, and like a lot. A lot of it. Like to the point where like there there were people like I remember hunters wearing leather, which was a bad dude, idea because it dude. reduced your stats. Or wearing cloth, dude. even though it reduced your stats. Forget about hunters having to wear stuff to reduce your stats, because that's cute and you think that mattered. Tanks had to yes. wear cloth. Yeah, tanks had to wear cloth. I was tanking Huron in cloth but, boots. <laughs> well, we could save so we could save some of those stories for the regular podcast. But the point is, you, there were tons of fights like that. Well, let me f- let me let me actually let me do a little diversion here. Sure. Be, this actually is both lore and story wise. At around the same time, the uh, the dragons of nightmare were world bosses had been introduced to the game, and in the lore of the the Ankaraj thing. They're related. The Nightmare, this is the first time we hear of the Nightmare, but it's very clearly made known that the Nightmare is related to the Old Gods in some way. And we have to go kill the Dragons of Nightmare, not Mm -hmm. just because they're monsters that have to be stopped, but because they have weapons and armor that that will allow us to go into Ankaraj. Which ties back to the original thing, too, because don't forget, during the battle of of what we're talking about, the original War of the Sands and and everything else that happened, who helped fight those creatures back into there? It was the Dragon Flights. The Dragon Flights aided the the Night Elves in doing so. So we had to take things from them in order to continue the fight. Like, it all wove together. It was phenomenal. We talk about environmental storytelling. That's what this was. Sorry, it was it was a very exciting time for for players who started for the first time really seeing how the fabric of the game's story was starting to be woven in deeper and deeper into game mechanics, which again was unheard of of MMOs at the time. And that actually leads me into something here. Go for it. Well, no, I mean it's already like four. 
as we're recording this, my time. Do we have enough time? We have plenty. We, do- we have as much time as you want. If we give them the a Cthul- little extra time, I think we're okay with it. The Cthulhu fight, which going with the Twin Amps up, when you got to the Twin Amps, the trash, had, like you got to Princess Huron. Princess Huron was the block. But then the, the next trash pull after Princess Huron probably wiped your raid. Yes. Because it had a mechanic you'd never seen before, and it was a nightmare. Then you got up to the, to the Twin Amps. Same deal. You died a lot, and you thought, my God, what can be worse than this? And the first trash pull after the Twin Amps taught you what could be worse than that. It was the first trash pull after the Twin Amps was worse than the Twin Amps. Eventually, you got up to Cthulhu. But first, you probably stopped and went into Buru's chamber. Yep. Buru's this giant worm. Not particularly interesting on a lore standpoint, but, you know, you go kill him for some loot. You get up to the Twin Amps. This is where the raid decides to really use environmental storytelling to teach you a lesson, because... Your raid is standing there in front of the, 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 the Cahoon chamber. There's no, there's no videos of this fight for you to go watch. The few people who've done it are not sharing their strategies. Nope. There's nothing on Wowhead about this. You have no idea what's about to happen. To you. But your, your bug mounts work here. You can all mount up. So everybody gets on their bug mount that you've been collecting this whole time. And this army of you get together. And rather than do the smart thing and go around the corner and talk to the dragons who've been trapped in this place for like a century, like th- 10 centuries, you decide, nah, we're going to do a pull. We're going to run in there and see what happens. <laughs> you get 20 feet into the room and Cthulhu kills your entire raid. Yep. With one attack. And the first person he hits with that attack might not die if it's a tank, but everybody else is going to because it jumps from target to target like chain lightning except it doesn't have a, a target limit. And it doubles in damage with every jump. So by the time it jumps to the fourth or fifth person, it is now doing like 20 times the health of anybody it hits. And it just keeps getting bigger. And it can jump back to that first person. So he's probably going to die too, just not as... He'll watch everybody else die and then he'll... Or she will. And, and that's the first That's the first step of that environmental storytelling of that encounter, right? Yeah. Like, you, there's, do, there's you do not just it. walk in on an old god. And, and to put it in perspective, too, like we talk about how big the old gods were. This is the first time you get to experience a piece of the old god, right? There are two key things in the encounter that allude to it. One is the eyeball phase which is the giant eye that comes at this crowning point of the god that's coming out of this brackish pool of of black goo. Um, and that's the artwork that you see on Hearthstone cards and everything else. That's where that came from. But also there is a series where you get digested by Cthulhu. You get swallowed and have to fight your way out. And that is the first time I think any of us experience in this game Something that massive that could swallow you whole and you don't just die. Like, yeah, it it sucked and it hurt and you took a lot of damage when you did it. But that was a core mechanic was inside of this boss. And it was a mind blowing revelation to me when I thought about it later of we just fought something that big. That's not what we saw outside. Yeah, you literally only ever get to see pieces of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. Even even the chamber you end up in when it swallows you is just a small piece of it. Yeah. And it's as big as the room you were just in. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to run across this chamber to get out, and you might not make it. It's very likely you could die. Um, the first guild that actually beat Cthulhu did so using an exploit 
there, there was a pet that you could get that would put a harmless debuff on you. Mm-hmm. But at the time, there was a limit to how many debuffs you could have. Yep. And the pet's debuff would stack up. So you could use the pet's debuff to push the debuff Cthune put on you when you went into his digestive system off and thus give yourself more time to get out. And that's how they beat him the first time. Because otherwise, people were just dying too much. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. That's not really lore, but it's still kind of like that's how the design of the fight affected the way people played it. But the design of the fight was very much, this is an old god. This is not at his full power, but even not at his full power, he's going to mess you up. Yeah, like you couldn't even go in the room. Like you couldn't just charge into the room. You had to spread your entire raid out in like a crescent so that the, the, the bolt couldn't jump to too many people. You wanted it to jump to maybe one person. And then there'd be nobody else for it to jump to because there's nobody close enough. If you're all grouped up, you all died. If you learned to spread out, the fight had now used its its mechanics to tell you how to do it. It was a mechanic that even at level 80, if you went back and tried to do it, would still kill you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, you couldn't ignore it. And, and it really just fed into everything that we just talked about throughout the entirety of this episode. Every piece of the design in uh, the Ruins of Ankaraj and the Temple of Ankaraj really brought the elements of that story to life because there are things that you find in game that tell you about it, right? There, there's a, there's journals and books that you found. And, and this was a big part of Vanilla WoW um, is that there were these, these gray items or things that you could find on mobs or on tables. Uh, and they told stories, right? And we'll, we'll talk more about this as we progress through because this is something that did continue up through Wrath. It's less now, but up through Wrath, it, 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 they were still I, things like it's that. Still, it's still in game. It, it's still There's in game. Still it's just not. It's just not as prevalent as of sources. I think it was. The game before. just also has other things now. But. Yes, but like that's how you you discovered it. But it never really gave you like you could hear about. Oh, here's the ceiling of the gray main wall. Here's uh, the war of the shifting sands. Here's what happened here. But it never really sits with you because you as a player don't have a sense of scale or scope in terms of the game world because you're like, oh, I just beat an elemental lord. Like, what's the big deal? But this was the first time that it felt that big and grand, and you started to get an idea of the increasing scale of the game, too. Because think about the things we've talked about beforehand. Ragnaros, not at full power, woken up too soon, we mess his stuff up, and even when we face him, he's a big, big dude. Then we move on to Anixia and Blackwing Lair, and those are so woven into everything that's happened in the Eastern Kingdoms beyond just the Arthas stuff from Warcraft 3 at this point, because it wasn't really dealt with in-game so much. And they were bigger than life, too. Because don't forget, Nefarian, I think, was a bigger model at the time than Ragnaros, which is saying something. And the scope of that fight was so much larger. And now you had Cthune, this sort of end cap to uh, a story that had spanned, at this point, thousands and tens of thousands of years of games and game time. meanwhile that's true and that's really important but also in terms of world of warcraft you fought silithids at like low levels like if you're horde you fought them in the barrens so the, these guys have been around for the whole game like as you leveled up to 60 silithids kept popping up you kept seeing these guys it was a continuing storyline across the expan- mm-hmm. across the entire game and then you got to like level like 50 something and you got the big quest where like oh this is a problem and then you know because other stuff was happening it didn't get developed immediately and you're like okay i guess we're not going to do anything with that and then this patch dropped and suddenly it was 
all on Courage. Mm-hmm. And you're like all this stuff that you had seen since you were like level 20 something. Since you were in your like level 30 running around in Feralos trying to figure out. I think I think Feralos is more like a level 40 zone at the time. Yeah, but I think so. You're running around going like, what's the deal with all these freaking bugs? Why are they so mad? Mr. Bug, why are you so mad? It only again. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a real interesting tie-off of all this stuff. And it also introduced the next raid, which you wouldn't think it would, because they have nothing in common. Mm-hmm. They are not in any way about each other, but they are tied together. There's a reason why you would go from one to the other. And that's we're going to talk about that one next time, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we are. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll have more. But yeah, Ankaraj, um, both the ruins and the temple was really an amazing thing that we had not seen anything like it before. And there were some problems. I mean, I took a few boats that ended up in the Stone Talon Mountains for no particular reason. I remember Captain Placeholder fondly, yes. Yeah. But, yeah, it was it was really something. And I, I, I feel kind of bad that WoW Classic players didn't get to have the experience the way we did. And, um, and for but, my money, like, these two raids really marked a pivotal turning point in the game's direction. Because at this point is also the realization that this game isn't going anywhere, that players are committed to it, that players are going to be around for a while, and that they're invested in not just the gameplay, but also people like myself and Matt and Anne and everybody else out there who loves the story, um, that they're going to dig, they're going to participate in these events because they're important. They feed into the story and unraveling the world of the game. And it was at this point, I think, that narrative direction sort of latched on to that. Because, and, I, and we talk about this often, WoW at this point wasn't thought to be around this long. It wasn't thought that it was going to last even this long. And so now you can start to see the DNA of these two raids in particular echoed throughout everything that has come since since then. Every raid we have now, when it looks big and flashy and uh, complicated, and we talk about those those as well, and the story that's woven through those, all of that pulls from the DNA of this event and this storytelling and this raiding experience and how everything tied together and wove together so intrinsically with the game world. Everything owes this moment, and, for, and I, I, this, that's a hill I will die on. Uh, that this, these two items were the moment where WoW decided this is what we're going to do. So, anything else you want to add before we call it? Because I think I think we are. Uh, there's we could gush about this for several more hours, and I'm sure folks at home would love to listen to it. No, there's a lot more we could talk about, but I feel like at this point we <laughs> we should save it because I I do want to talk more about Cthulhu and the Cthulhu fight. And I think that we should do so as relates to why we went to Nax. So I think so because too. one of the let's be I'm going to say this much. One of the things we haven't really covered in this lore conversation that we maybe should have are the legendaries because the legendaries were the big part of these raids. Uh, the, the 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 work to gather legendary items for various classes. And maybe that's uh, a maybe that's a discussion we'd have both here and on the other podcast. Maybe, but. The coming of the first caster legendary in World of Warcraft history is very much the bridge between AQ-40 and Naxxramas. Mm-hmm. And that legendary was of immense importance lore-wise. So I think we should definitely should probably talk about that next week, too. 
So I'm going to throw that out there. I would agree. But with that, I think we're going to call it a day for now. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode and this latest foray into uh, the lore importance of raids in Warcraft. Uh, but Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Your continued support means this podcast lighting community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. If you have questions for the podcast, be sure to send them in podcast at blizzardwatch.com. You can also hit us up on Discord. Uh, we have one channel set aside for our Patreon subscribers. We also have one for folks that can't necessarily support us on Patreon. And if you are enjoying this series, please let us know. Um, and also, if you are listening to them on a platform that allows you to upvote them or give some love and review, uh, feel free to do so as well. Believe it or not, those things really do help us out. Uh, and maybe share it with your friends because Hey, everybody should love the same things we love, right? Let's go for it. Uh, but with that, we'll see you next week. <laughs>